You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. I'm just going to jump right in because with Mary, there's a lot to talk about. Um, And yeah, I don't want to shortchange her in any way. So uh, this year went really, really quickly for me, um, and I'm grateful to be able to speak to you during Advent. Um, Although I'm not one for rules and regulations, if you know my personality, hence the never being on time piece, um, I do love the routine of being in harmony with our international family and larger church calendar during the season. At my college graduation at Swarthmore, uh, Laureen Carey, a local African-American writer, educator, and social activist, said something that has stuck with me for years. Ritual roughs up the smooth surface of memories that existence can snag. Ritual helps us slow down, to be present in our bodies, to connect with one another and our histories. So to open our time together, I invite you to take a breath. Our inhale weds us to the present moment and our exhale releases the crap of the day, or the year, or whatever it is for you. (laughs) These full nourishing breaths, they're good for you. Keep returning to your breath as I speak today. And if all you have capacity for is to focus on your breath today, that's okay too. That's how we wait well. If anyone has ever been in a birth room or um, learned at all about birth, there is that expectancy you need to breathe. Advent is a ritual of remembering. Like breathing, Advent is one of the church's rhythms. We come together at this time of year in a season of waiting, expecting and longing amidst the realities of this messy world. In our way of remembering and marking the way that God came to us, God is still with us, and that God will come again to heal and to restore. So tonight we get to remember and wait with Mary, the young woman on the margins, the mother of Jesus, She waited over months for Jesus' birth during her pregnancy. She felt the heaviness of waiting as she carried God in her own body. And just for those who have not had children, me being one of them, and for those who talk of birth and pregnancy are painful, I have two things to say. One, in this talk, pregnancy and birth, think of them as metaphors. Like, think of them very expansively. This came up in our talk back um, during the five. And also remember, when we go to the text, Um, We're going to talk about the Annunciation today, that Mary found favor with God before she carried Jesus. She did not work to earn her favor with God. She was favored, period, right? All right, so who is Mary? Growing up, Mary wasn't a big part of my spiritual life. Um, Although my mother was Filipina-American with strong Catholic roots, I was primarily raised in the Protestant tradition. My dad was Lutheran, and when they married, she converted to Lutheranism. Um, I also had a lot of theological opinions as a youth. Yeah, I still have opinions. Yeah. Um, I remember judging my Catholic family for praying to Mary. I thought it was a heresy. Why couldn't they just go straight to God? This was unjust, right? I did not understand why Mary was so important. But beyond my tiny imagination, Mary is a big effing deal around the globe. This I have learned. (laughs) Ironically, even though there's very little historical record of Mary, because women's stories weren't considered um, as important to record at that time, her image and imaginary are everywhere. 
And by imaginary, I just mean the way we imagine her, right? We find her in popular culture, so think Hail Mary, passes in football, um, or marigolds, those kinds of things, right? But we also know her through Beyonce. Uh, she used the imagery of Our Lady of Guadalupe for her baby announcements. And then, anybody know this one? Just last week, Kanye produced a Mary opera that took place on a barge in F Miami, Florida. <laughs> yeah, everything comes out of Florida, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's amazing. I don't know how they do all that painting. Um, let's see. So, we also find her in academic, artistic, and religious settings. You have to have seen some of these pieces. Um, you can't avoid them. There are tens of thousands of books written on her, an entire field of, theo field of theology. So Mariology, specific um, category, is, it's dedicated to her. She's inspired thousands of great works of art, feast days, music, liturgies from around the world. There are hundreds of shrines dedicated to her that attract so many people each year that it's like billions of dollars of religious tourism. This is an example um, from my home country, Blessed, the Blessed Mary Shrine in Cebu, Philippines. There's a lot. Philippines is very Catholic. Mary is everywhere. Just even reading her titles, it would, could take me like the entire half hour just to read through. So we have like Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Sorrows, Our Lady of Immaculate Conception. Um, but I think one of my favorite names for her and one of her most special names, especially in Eastern Christianity, is Theotokos um, or God-bearer. And I'm just like, that's pretty epic. Yeah, the woman has names. Yeah, she's associated with lots of healings, too. Um, this is Lourdes. Um, it's the Virgin's most famous pilgrimage site, um, and over 7,000 miraculous cures have been claimed there um, since the mid-1800s. This is in France, kind of in, it's, you can tell it's at the foot of, like, the Pyrenees Mountains. Um, that's in southwestern France. Um, she's also known for appearing, or apparitions, um, so coming to people in visions. This is a map of the world and all the apparitions that have been uh, claimed. Uh, some of them are, you know, recognized by the church, but whatever. These, I think this is really interesting um, that there's 2,000. Um, and then here's a uh, zoom in on Europe. And so there's a lot there. And, I mean, you could just say that, oh, well, these are a lot of Catholic regions. That's why they're seeing Mary. I'm like, yes, that's why they're seeing Mary, because they're actually looking for Mary, right? <laughs> um, what, like, what would we see if we were actually looking for her? Um, I think the other interesting piece is that she always appears in the ethnic identity of the person she appears to. So one example of that is in 1981. Um, in Rwanda, she appeared to a bunch of, like, four schoolgirls um, who were in college at the time in southwestern Rwanda, and she warned of genocide. Um, and that was a few years before the genocide actually happened, but at that point, the tensions between the Hutus and the Tutsis were already rising. And she called herself Nina Wajambo, or Mother of God. So she came in the language and the appearance of the person who was seeing her. She also pre uh, presents a unique site for interfaith connections. So uh, this is a book uh, from the Carmelite uh, nuns, um, and it's about the Quran. So Mary, or Maryam, is the only woman to have her own surah or chapter in the Quran. She is considered above all other women of the world, and interestingly, unlike the Bible and the Quran, Mary gives birth alone. There's no Joseph. So it's kind of a, I don't, I don't know why, but that's just an interesting, interesting tidbit. All right. 
So Mary's imaginary has been used in harmful and helpful ways due to her malleability and power. She has been co-opted for all sorts of projects. When we go back, we see that uh, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the first millennium, Mary was often portrayed as an imperial figure, as a part of the colonial agenda. So here we see a very floofy Mary, um, in my opinion, but this was, a, this was a very royal interpretation of her. So you see kind of she's above us, um, she, there's a lot of gold, um, so that puts us kind of in an imperial mindset. Here's also a very old rendition of her, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. This one is at the Vatican, I believe, um, in St. Peter's Church. So this is very, very famous. Then in the second millennium, she entered a more tender and more accessible era, according to medieval historian Mary Rubin. She came to represent gentleness and maternal love. This was likely still for a colonial project in some way, but she also brought deep comfort to uh, suffering people. A few hundred years later, during the Reformation, she lost her status as intercessor or mediator within the pro Protestant tradition. This is because the Reformation advocated for getting rid of the corrupt intermediaries between humans and God. Um, and that I felt like I could kind of get on board for, but that's also because I have Lutheran roots, so, you know. However, um, the other thing that it did is it created like a freeway for the erasure of the divine feminine. Um, and the continued rise of what Christina Cleveland has coined white male God. Um, that's all one word in Western Christianity. So one thing we need to remember is that there's always two stories happening, right? So there's on the one hand kind of this narrative of patriarchy and colonization, and on the other hand we have reclamation and revolution. These are always kind of spiraling together with a bunch of other stories in between, right? We always are making meaning. Of, of this. Um, Our Lady of Guadalupe is a good example of these dual stories. As the story goes, Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared on the cloak of a poor man named Juan Diego in Mexico in 1531. She appeared as a Mexican woman, not as White Mary. Um, and this symbol, her symbol, and what she stood for uh, deeply informed the Mexican identity. Um, so this is a narrative of colonization, but it also has been claimed for social revolution. So in 1960s, Cesar Chavez marched with her banner in the fight to unionize farm workers in California. So for us, it's easy to kind of like, kind of pick apart, um, like, oh, I see, that's, co that's colonial, that's not good. Um, but if you were actually to go to Mexico and degrade Mary, Mother Mary, you get a lot of flack for that. Like, don't do that, they might kick you out. Um, so she's so dear to their country, and they've claimed her and reclaimed her over and over again. All right. Similarly, throughout the second half of this millennium, her imaginary continued to spread throughout the world, um, including to my own country of origin, the Philippines. Uh, this is a picture of a jeepney. It's kind of a public transportation um, of Manila. And I took this picture last year when I went with my Lolo. So she's everywhere, but again, she comes with this mixed history. Uh, this is the Filipina Madonna. Um, and some of the history there that is part of my story that the Spanish colonized the Philippines. Um, these people were originally known as the Tao people, um, and that's before like King Philip or whoever it was named it the Philippines. So there's still, you know, even colonization in the root name there. Um, so they, that was about 300 years, so from 1565 to 1898. 
Catholicism became the national religion and became one of the most powerful vehicles of whiteness, infecting my people with a colonial mindset, inferiority, self-hatred, and cultural erasure. 86% of the Philippines still practices Catholicism. This effect has been studied by post-colonial psychologists and written about in a book called Brown Skin, White Minds. So it's a, it's a studied happening. But what do I do with this? My grandparents, they pray to Mary every single day. They love her. She gives them strength as they have immigrated to this country and have been trying to find home. Like she has created home for them. So it's, it's complicated, right? Um, and her imaginaries touch each of us in some way, right? Um, maybe in some bad ways, right? So she kind of represents virginity, purity, all of that. So if you know anything of purity culture, some of that uh, is kind of embodied in uh, many of these interpretations of Mary. But we also have some awesome renditions of Mary. Um, a lot of times liberal progressive circles, kind of like us, um, like to kind of own her as the biblical Che Guevara. Um, I really do like this image, though. I have a shirt. I should have worn it today. I did not. But it really resonates with me in a season of longing. Like, I'm looking for um, someone to lead, right? Um, it's, she's pretty controversial, right? So in three different countries, uh, Guatemala, India, and Argentina, they've banned the reading and reciting of Mary's song in public um, because it's considered too subversive. So I think that's also a, it kind of just a note to her power. This is another beautiful rendition of The Black Madonna of Sacred Activism by William Hart McNichols. There's so much to her, and this is just a brief overview of her power throughout the world. So now we're going to turn to the text from today. We're going to focus on the Gospel of Luke to kind of see, like, can we, can we see her better? Can we see God better um, in kind of all of their complexities? Okay, so we're starting with Luke 1, 26 to 56. Uh, would someone read this out loud? Preferably a woman. Tonight. Let's do, let's do a lady. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man who was named, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give, him, give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Thank you. So what do we notice here a little bit? Um, Mary's response to the appearance of the angel is really distinct from Zechariah's. So right before this, the angel appears to Zechariah, says, hey, your wife is going to have a baby. She's like 70-ish years old, and he's so terrified that God actually smites him, in a sense, and makes him mute for almost a year. <laughs> so different experience here, right? Mary is also troubled by the angel's words, specifically their greeting. The angel says, greetings favored one, the Lord is with you. Those are words that give her pause, favored one. That's what, that's what gives her pause. Not that she is to birth God, which is something that would confuse most people. 
Perhaps she, a child, probably only 14 years old, on the margin of society and at the bottom of the social hierarchy, does not understand how she might be favored or known by God. She's probably doing one of these like, are you talk wait, are you talking to me? Right? So this is the Annunciation. I really love this image. This is actually at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's a very soft, I think it's pretty accurate. I mean, she looks like she's 14, right? Then the angel continues, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Note the repetition of God's favor, like the angel needs to say this twice. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, will, there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? That's a reasonable question. Um, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born of you will be holy. He will be called son of God, and now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So I'm seeing a lot of, there it is, here we go. I'm seeing a lot of definitive words there, like a lot of I, this, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, right? So Mary feels like it doesn't really ha she doesn't have a moment to speak. And when she did, she asked a very legitimate and short question, how? It feels like the scene is moving swiftly, her previous reality, her life is being uprooted in a matter of minutes. I think if I were in her shoes, I might ask a different question. Why? Like, just a little more, right? Then she replies, fairly swiftly, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. So at this point, I could give you a tidy reflection. She received life from God with immediate and holy obedience, and therefore, we should too. But this narrative isn't that easy. It gets a little complicated. I think it's the first part of the story that sets my gut a little on edge. First, this is a big ask. Is it even an ask, or is it merely a command? Is there any consent here? Did Mary actually have a choice within this kind of power dynamic? Could she actually say no to a deity? I'm starting to feel protective of Mary, very protective. So first, I think we have to deal with the word servant. As I was kind of wrestling with this, I decided, hey, let's go to the Greek. Maybe the Greek word will have some help for us. This was very silly of me. Um, so looked it up. The word is actually doulos, like my job. <laughs> um, and then the first definition under that was handmaiden. Ah, that's exactly my problem with this text. Second definition, bond slave. Nope, you don't leave that one too. Um, and then third definition was servant. So I was like, okay, well, I guess you chose the best one, NRSV. We'll just go with that for now. So, I mean, I could say, right, that slavery was different then, and I would be somewhat correct, but in some way, it's always oppressive. So the text stays sticky, and I think this is where we often get into the meat of, you know, what we're supposed to learn from what we're doing here. I think the second reason I feel uneasy is that this kind of conception of white male God um, has messed with my conception of God, right? It's narrow, like it's 
It doesn't represent all of us. When I imagine white male God making this ask, it feels like a sick demand because the wombless white male God does not know what he's demanding of her. In the wake of Me Too and Church Too movements, it's hard not to imagine a patriarchal God carrying out his plan by making a sexual demand on her body without her consent. We must name that tension within our context. Here's where querying of the text can help us out. And I don't say this to be provocative or innovative or even politically correct. I don't really care. But I do say this because reimagining God as female can actually give us a more expansive perception of who God is and the, the power of what's going on here. I think it can be healing. So I invite you to consider God as mother, or Ate, Ate is older sister in Tagalog, um, or maybe even Tita, that's auntie. So actually take a moment to do that. So as mother or older sister, this is what God says. I see you. I am with you. And I ask you for this as mother. I know in my body what this ask means, that you will carry in your own body this child and everything that comes with it, even the risk of death. It might be heavy, it might hurt, but I know you. I know you are strong and you are the person I trust to bring life into this world. You will not be alone. I will be with you. Would you carry this? And to that, Mary responds, yes, I trust you. That, that makes sense, right? So take a breath. Take that in. Imagine whoever you see as mother, God, mother God or sister. Imagining God as mother or sister provides an opportunity for radical healing. It reclaims the narrative from the white male God, from patriarchy, from the colonial mindset. Instead of a narrative of coercion or resigned acceptance, this becomes an invitation from a place of intimacy, of deep knowing. Then after the Annunciation, Mary immediately goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin. There's a really beautiful piece, too. Um, she goes to her older cousin, likely for companionship and support, but also to witness the miracle in Elizabeth's life. She stays with Elizabeth for three months, which me she means she was at the birth of John, because Elizabeth was six months along when the Annunciation took place. Um, and knowing this culture, it's likely that she was even at the, in the birth room, accompanying Elizabeth through labor. In essence, she was probably acting as a doula in more a more contemporary sense, waiting and welcoming this baby into the world. And then there's this glorious song that I wait all year to read. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, for now, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things in me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and then returned home. So I'm an Enneagram 8. 
and this is about the 80 of songs you could ever get. <laughs> Justice. Yes. I don't know if that cheapens the song or not, <laughs> but I think, I think it's quite great. I think Mary's radical acceptance, her here am I, is not because she's submissive, but, but because she is wicked smart. She sees the world as it is and as it could be. Her song reveals her. She is a prophet, a liberator, a truth speaker with an apocalyptic orientation. She is living into the already but not yet. By embodied participation in God's renewal under the shadow of the Roman Empire, living into a new future. So Mary, did you know? Oh yes, she knew. She knew. I think this next image represents what she knew and what she carried. This is Our Lady of Sorrow. This is the patron saint of the Philippines. It's another name for Mary. Oh, whoops. There we go. Boop. Thank you. So here she's represented wounded by seven swords in her heart, a reference to the prophecy Simeon gave to her when she presented Jesus to him. In that story, Simeon blesses them, and as he does so, he whispers to Mary and says, this child is going to turn the world upside down, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I think the next image also embodies this. This is the Pieta. This is my mother's favorite version of Mary. Because I asked her about this too. I was like, so I'm speaking on Mary. What do you think? She gave me this. She knew. She knew what she would carry. She knew that she was signing up to accompany Jesus as mother. Her body would be tied to his. But she also knew that it was worth it. She was a people living under empire, a people who deeply longed for a better world. And one thing I like to imagine is that, don't you think she probably taught Jesus the Magnificat too? As mothers or as older people, we teach our kids our songs. This is the last image I want to share for this section. This is by Kehinda Wiley. He did the Obama portraits or one of the Obama portraits. This is Mary, comforter of the afflicted. And it's also interesting that this is a, kind of a, a black male representation of Mary, um, too. It's very striking. All right. So just in closing, I was trying to figure out how to close this topic, or this talk. Um, I asked myself a question. Why did you write all of this? Why did it matter to me to share? Um, and I actually got a surprising answer from myself. And this is kind of in working this out with um, Wes, my partner. I was like, I need to figure out why this matters because I feel in my body this matters. Um, and the answer that came to me is that I actually don't trust God all the time. Anybody else feel that? <laughs> um, I mean, the pivotal mo point of this talk is that I felt the need to protect Mary from God from God. That's kind of crazy. In reality, I think this is me trying to protect myself, my sisters, and those I love from perhaps that patriarchal God um, that I imagine, you know, even if I don't try to imagine this. The American church is enmeshed with white male God, and I have built strong, sturdy walls to protect myself. Often I just want to burn it down and not look back. Has anyone else felt that? Might be the reason you're in this room today. And then at the same time, I can't overlook the fact that I'm complicit and carry some of the white male godness in me. Sometimes I'm ashamed at where I've come from and afraid of the destruction my habits might bring. 
There's a scene in the most recent Alien movie where the female protagonist realizes that she's pregnant with an alien, and aliens are not good in this scenario, right? Sometimes, you know, there's this idea that, like, maybe the aliens are good, and we just need to change our conceptions of foreigners, right? But this is, this is a case where the alien is bad, bad news, okay? So she's alone, so she decides to do a cesarean section on herself. And sometimes I feel like that. Oh, it's a bad image. I probably would never be able to do that to myself, but I sometimes feel like maybe I'm birthing a monster, like that my habits, sadly, many of which I've learned in earlier experience, um, some in church and some not, will bring more destruction into the world. Right? Avon is for those who wait, and as a doula, I know much of birth, and therefore I know much of waiting and waiting and waiting. The season is often framed as one of anticipation, but anticipation feels very different than waiting to me. Anticipation feels like holding our breath, which is never what you want to do if you're trying to birth anything. So try this with me. Breathe in for four counts. One, two, three, four. Now hold your breath. And let it out. Exhale. Good. That holding is anticipation. We can't wait for that breath to come, right? And holding our breath is not very sustainable in the waiting. I have always had trouble holding my breath. In fact, when I was a toddler, I used to hold my breath until I passed out as a way to manipulate my mother. It's very bad. <laughs> and I was the first one, so this was her introductory to motherhood. I need to apologize to her for that at some point. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I've kept up some of those habits. So when I get anxious, I also hold my breath even when I don't know it. So poor Wes, the other day I woke him up, or he woke up because I was holding my breath in the middle of the night. Like I was sleep, sleeping and not breathing. So he's like, wake up. <laughs> so I really freaked him out. I feel bad about that too. But here's the deal. So we've been anticipating and holding our breath for a long time. And this makes sense if we can't trust God or at least the image we have of God, right? So if white male God is forcing you to have this baby, of course your breath will be shallow and full of anxiety. But if mother God or sister God is asking you, the one who knows you is asking you to bring life into the world, they know what it's like. They know to accompany you. Your breath will be full and calm. Your breath will soften you so that you can bring forth new life. And I don't need to remind you of the state of the world. We are reminded of it every week, every day. The bad news is all around us. In this season, we need a God that we can trust. Advent is for those who long. This Advent, I long for a God who I can trust. I long for a God who knows longing. For love is the birthplace of longing, and longing is that of new imagination for a better world. As we face this apocalyptic era, we long for healing and redemption. We carry the waiting and the expectation in our bodies. As a response to despair, anxiety, hopelessness, and powerlessness, we feel we must, we feel we must remember to doula one another. These are our small prophetic acts in the waiting. We must reimagine our current state of waiting and longing too. What if this is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? This is Valley Coir. We must recognize life in one another and accompany them as they labor. And remember, you will find God in unlikely places. This is Autumn Peltier. She is a water protector and advocate for the Anishinaabek people. 
I see a lot of similarities with her and Mary. She's 15 years old. She was named Chief Water Commissioner by her nation in April of this year. This position has been passed down to her by her great aunt, Josephine Mandamin. She is a young brown woman under empire. She has been invited to carry life by her great aunt. This is the image of the Annunciation as it come, continues to happen in our time. I trust the God who chooses Autumn. Both Mary and Autumn help us to remember who God is in a more expansive way. We love God because of Mary. We choose the God who chose Mary, who knew her, who loved her, who trusted her, and who trusts us. To carry, to breathe, and to push. I'm going to take a moment and pray, and then we can talk back. Okay? So God, we thank you for all these texts, these artists, images of Mary that continue to help us. Teach us to carry life even in times of grief, fear, and violence. Help us to know when to deep breathe, or breathe deeply and when to push. God, we ask you to actively wait with us in this season. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.